my friends, welcome. Let's worship Jesus. Let's speak the name of Jesus into our lives. Let's have him be present in everything we do. Oh, it's good to sing to Jesus today. Come on. Jesus. 
everybody doing today? You can go and have a seat. So I'll ask that again now that you're seated. How's everybody doing today? Come on, we can do better than that. Man, 9 a.m. was louder. How's everybody doing today? Well, man, I am excited to worship with each and every one of you. If you are a guest, we want to, first time guest, we want to encourage you to check out the guest services center so we can get to know you better. And please fill out the connection card. It's in the pew in front of you. And that way we can get to know you a little bit better. And just a couple things for you today. So let me ask you a question. How many of you, how many of you have ever talked to another human being? Okay, that, that's good to know. How many of you have ever been in conflict with another human being? Even more of you. I don't know how that math adds up, but somehow it does, right? Every person in here, we have been in conflict with another human being at some point in our lives. And sometimes it's really hard to know how to navigate that. Well, we are offering... Make sure I get the name right. I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to get the title, of the, the title of the class right. That's all. So, yes, we are offering a class on learning how to handle conflict, and it is called the Alliance Peacemaking Class, and it begins next week at 4 a.m. Sorry, 9 a.m. for the next four weeks. I didn't even do that on purpose. I really didn't. I really didn't. That I, First service I said 4 a.m., and I was like, oh, it would be funny if I did it again. I really did it again. It was an accident. So, 9 a.m., we're not making you wake up before the crack of dawn. 9 a.m. starting next week. Um, and then we also have a Surviving the Holidays class starting on November 14th. That's from 2 to, excuse me, November 13th from 2 to 4 p.m. And if you, if you, you or someone you know has had a loved one pass away, this just helps learning how to navigate through the holidays. We know it's a very difficult time. And that, again, that class, November 13th, 2 to 4 p.m., both of these events can be found on the app or online, or if you want more information, please fill out the connection card in front of you. And again, if you're, if you're watching online, well, there you go. You can get on, your, you can get on the Westgate website right now. So um, with that said, please take a look at the screen.
Awesome, awesome. Good morning, church family. My name is Julianne. I get to work here doing outreach and missions, and I just love International Friends Thanksgiving dinner, which is coming up in four weeks from today. So as you saw some footage from last year's event, we just love this night set apart to welcoming the nations that have moved into our neighborhoods to come celebrate Thanksgiving with us as a church. And you can see that there's a meal, there's tables, there's games, there's activities, there's so many different parts together to making this unique event that we have hosted every year here for the last 15 years. We're hoping 200 students will come join us. And so with that, I have Dr. Clint Longnecker, Dr. Clint, as international students endearingly call him. We have worked together at many, many of these events as well as recently we did a leadership seminar with um, international students and mentors with you guys here at the church last month. There's so many different ways that you're professional career has intersected with the international students at the University of Toledo while you were working there with students and international students, leadership, all these things. And you've been a member here at Westgate for decades. For many decades. Hey, good morning, Westgate Chapel. It's a privilege to be able to share a couple thoughts with you this morning. Before we do it, let's give a big round of applause for Julianne and all that she does at our yeah. church. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Look, Thank you. So, all that to say, um, I had the privilege for 38 years of work at the University of Toledo. International students were part of my classes, my MBA, undergraduate, executive MBA classes. So there was a natural connecting point that we could bring young people into our home, kids from far away. Now stop for a second and think about yourself. You've gone to a new country, you've left your family behind, your friends behind, it's a completely new culture, your food is behind you, all these other things. So they are here to study to improve their position in life. And these are terrific young people by and large, but the question is what's going on in their heart? Hey, they're lonely, they're struggling at some level, they want to connect, and 50% of students who are at the University of Toledo never meet an American uh, or are in an American home off campus. So what an opportunity for us to bring these international students here to be a table host at this gathering. Claire Weingartner said, we brought this up in our community. She said, it's the best, most fun thing we do. <laughs> so I want you to think about it and pray about whether you would be willing to be a table host, which entails showing up, setting the table, putting a couple decorations out there. The goal is 30 tables. We've already uh, gathered a pretty good number already, so I'll turn it back to Julianne. This is absolutely a great point where the mission field is knocking on our door at Westgate Chapel. And in the words of my lovely wife, Cindy, she said it best, the mission field has come here. You can connect with them at this event and then bring the mission field right into your home. And it's a tremendous opportunity to make a significant spiritual and cultural difference in the lives of these young people. Julian. Yeah, they remember it for years to come. Forever this is a, and ever. a forever lifetime experience for them. So we have had 400 international students come to UT this semester alone. Um, there's already 2,000 there that are studying. Uh, often they only interact with their peers and their professors. So they are not interacting with families. They're um, from often relational uh, communities where they aren't interacting with children here, they're in interacting with older people, and there's a yearning in their heart for that connection. And so we get to say at this holiday season when you're feeling alone, we want you to be part of our family. We'd love to have you come celebrate with us, learn. We're going to learn from you. You learn from us. We'll sh talk about what Thanksgiving's all about. We talk about what we're most thankful for. It's a very open door to talk about what God has done in our lives as we ask them questions about their life. And so it's a really, really significant opportunity to welcome the nations, which is, as I look around, there's all these flags up left from Missions Week. 
Um, and that, that's our next step, right? We get to welcome internationals as a way of doing in, as, as a way of doing missions. Julian, how do I sign up? Yeah, that's the great question. So, we have a table out at, at, at the uh, cafe, but in your worship guide, you have the information on all the different ways to serve, not just hosting tables, donating food, transportation, registration, activities, all these roles need. We have so many spots for you and your family, your life group, your friends to serve together. Also online, live stream friends, we'd love for you guys to check it out as well. It's always available on the app, on that home screen, as well as um, our westgatechapel.org webpage. All the available all the information is available. We'd love to get you signed up. And the faster we get the information, the faster we can know how many students we can host. So as you're praying this week, please let us know so that we can fill it up. We're hoping for up to 200 international students with us. And the more the tables we have, the more students we can have. Think about Philippians 2.13. It says, for it is God at work within you both to will and work for his good pleasure. What an opportunity to make God smile through our activity. So I'd really encourage you to pray about this and know that you will be changed from this experience. Thanks so much. Awesome. So with that, uh, you guys may take a moment to greet somebody here that you might have not met before. Thanks, everybody. God bless you good.
change everything. Believe that he is the name above all names. Do you believe that? Man, we're going to do a new song. I want to ask you guys a question. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to, don't have to say anything out loud, but you can if you want to. But do you know someone who is hurting? Do you know someone who is sick? Do you know someone who's struggling with depression? Maybe it's an incurable disease. Maybe you feel like there's no hope with this person. Maybe you're sitting in this room and maybe you feel like you're struggling with something that there is no cure for. Maybe you know someone, maybe you know someone like I do who's struggling with addiction, giving themselves over to that. Maybe you've known someone. The reality is every single person here, whether we are affected directly or indirectly, we know people who are hurting. We know people who are sick. I know for me, my own life, I sing these words. I sing, you know, Jesus, you change everything. And I say I believe that the name of Jesus is more powerful than anything else, but a lot of times in my own life, I look for something rational. I look at the world, I say, now world, give me the answers. Because maybe the answer that I want isn't always the answer that I, that I get. So a lot of times I'm not really, my heart isn't really prepared to receive a miracle. 
I'm not ready to see it because I don't really believe it. I say I do, maybe I genuinely do deep down, but I'm still hanging on to what the world says. And the world says there's always a rational explanation for something, right? I'm going to read these verses to you. Luke 24, verse 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, this is Jesus here, it's Jesus talking. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then finally, story in Acts 3, story about a guy who couldn't walk his whole life. Yet he gathered, every, he, he showed up at the gates of the temple, the church, okay, every single day. And at some point in his life, he just gave up he was like, I'm never going to walk in, so I'm just going to ask for money. So that's what he was doing. He was there asking for money, and he saw Peter and John going into the temple, and starting in verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, and I love that, look at us. You know they're about to give him the truth. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Guys and gals, I'm here to tell you today that if you know someone who is struggling, if you know someone who is afflicted, there is a miracle worker in his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. He is the name above every other name, and through him comes healing. Do you believe that? As we sing this song, I want you to keep that person's name on your mind. Keep that person's name on your mind right now. Put it on your heart. And give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus because he is the name above every other name. He is the healer. Yes. And I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Come on. Because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. Right. I just want to speak the name of Jesus Till every dark addiction starts to break Declaring there is hope and there is freedom I speak Jesus Shadow 
Father, so I just pray the power of your name into every broken space, Lord, every wounded heart, 
every addiction, Lord God, we just, we ask you to move and we believe that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church family, right now we're going to take our morning offering. The music is going to continue to play and we just want to give uh, back to the Lord and worship. Uh, if you're a guest, you can allow the buckets to pass, but they are here in the center aisle and up at the edges. I'd ask you if you're sitting here to grab one of those buckets and you can just pass them through and our ushers will collect those. Let's just give thanks to the Lord as we uh, do our offering this morning and reminder of how faithful he has been to us. <clears throat> church family. It is good to be together. Yes? I have a question for you. How many of you like to cook steak? Anybody here? Yes. We like a good steak. I love a good steak. Uh, you know, as we begin this morning, I was thinking about the passage of scripture that we're going to be diving into. And as I was studying it this week, I had a nice chuckle because it reminded me of something that happened to me last year. Uh, I love to cook steak for people. We, Rochelle and I had some friends that were coming over. And so I decided it was a special occasion that I was going to take some time to make a steak for them. Uh, really, guys, I just want to have steak later today and I need some time to prepare it in the service. But... Um, she, uh, we, we decided that we were going to make steak. So I got up early in the morning and I went through my normal routine, ran out to the store, picked up some nice New York strip steaks. And when I got home, I began the process of uh, preparing the steak. I have a nice process I like to go through of just rubbing it down with a little bit of uh, olive oil before I begin and then taking a nice little secret uh, dry rub that I do at home and throwing that onto the steak. And so I went through my normal process of getting ready because when I was having guests over, I wanted really wanted them to be treated well and to just have a nice, enjoyable evening. And uh, so I went through the steak preparing process, but when I completed doing the steak uh, and getting it ready, uh, I wanted to let it sit for most of the day, probably about four or five hours until our guests would get there, really let the spices get into the steak itself. And uh, so I, I let it sit and I got myself caught up in a number of projects uh, and ultimately ended up sitting down in front of the TV and watching a football game until that fateful moment where many men may be able to relate to me, my wife comes up to me in a hurry and says, have you started cooking yet? Right? Any guy here ever had that moment, right? I was late getting cooked because I'm supposed to be timing this perfectly so that the steaks are done as our guests arrive and it matches everything else that she is preparing. And so she, uh, she kind of got on my case and said, you need to get up and you need to start cooking. Now, uh, so I, I jumped up, I went and I found my steaks and took them out to the grill, was going to get ready to lay them down. You know, I thought, okay, you know, they, they may not be completely done by the, test, uh, by the time our guests get here. But I went around and uh, turned on the uh, gas to the uh, thing and nothing, no light whatsoever and a panic set in. The panic because I remember what my wife said to me when I got up that morning. Do you have propane? And dismissively I said, yes, what guy doesn't? 
And I began to realize the guests are coming. They're going to be here soon. And I have no propane. I have no gas to light my grill. I kind of started to have a little bit of a panic moment. I went to the back. I began to check the tank, lifted it up. And I'm like, yep, nothing in it. So I got the bright idea. Rite Aid is just around the corner. They have one of those blue rhino stations. I can just exchange it, get one, be home in like seven minutes. The problem solved. You know, it'll still be a little late, but everything will be fine. So I do that. I go over there. And as I get inside the Rite Aid, I walk up to the cashier. I'm like, hey, I need to get me some uh, propane and they look at me and say, sorry, we're all out. What do you mean you're all out? I see a whole thing of canisters. Nope, they're all empty. And I'm going to start to panic again. I'm like, okay, where's the next place? Kroger. Kroger. I need to run to Kroger on Sylvania. So I jump in my car, drive over there, promised didn't break the speed limit. Lying. And I got over to Kroger. And as I get to Kroger, I get in and I look and I see absolutely no propane. I run across the street like to Walgreens. And I'm like, hey, another propane station. I need to get some propane. I need to exchange my tank. Sorry, we're all out. What I begin to realize is that propane was like toilet paper during the pandemic. <laughs> Everybody must have been on a rush to get it and nobody had it. So I literally in the parking lot jump on my phone and I start looking up all the different places where I could potentially get propane. But instead of trying to drive to all of them, I start doing phone calls and I get the same thing over and over again. Sorry, we're out. Sorry, we're out. Sorry, we're out. And I'm like, oh my goodness, our guests are going to be at our house any minute. I don't have anything. I don't know what I'm going to do. The whole dinner is going to be ruined. And then a bright idea comes to me. I'll call my friends. I have friends. I can call them. I can borrow their propane. So I call my friends and none of them will answer their phones. And I'm freaking out. I'm like, Rochelle's going to kill me. So, so I get the last bright idea that I had, right? Who do you call when you're in trouble? No. Oh, I totally set myself up for that. That's a whole different sermon. Okay. Who do you call? Randy Fall. He's the MacGyver of Westgate Chapel. He can fix any problem. He can solve it. I call him, Randy, we have propane at the church, right? He's like, oh, yeah, sure. Hey, look, explain the story to him real quick. I'm in a lot of trouble. Can I just go steal a propane tank? He goes, tomorrow's the church picnic. And, you know, if there's no propane out there and we run out, we're not going to have enough. I'm not sure. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I did what any good pastor would do. I went to the church and I took it. <laughs> all right, all right, little, little, little bit of a joke. Uh, Randy actually was like, okay, maybe you can take it. Just make sure you don't use all of it. You know, don't leave it turned on and, and forget that it's running. So, so I went, I was able to get the propane. I got home in time to be able to cook the steak. Uh, the owner of the house, me, let me in and, and I was able to cook. That's where the story deviates a little bit from our passage this morning. However... One of the important lessons that I learned that day is that there are, a few, there are a few worse feelings than not being prepared for an important moment. And as we have been diving together into God's word this week, next week, but also last week, taking a look at Matthew chapter 24 and 25, as we dig into our passage in Matthew 25 this morning, we're going to find that Jesus is going to emphasize to us this same essential truth. There is nothing worse than not being prepared. If you weren't with us last week, we began a series entitled Urgent. And we're taking a look at Matthew 24 and 25. And if you remember kind of the context around this, we started talking about last week, just to give you a little catch up if you weren't here, that, you know, as we look at our world today and we see many of the different events that are happening, how the moral fabric of our nation at times seems like it's in complete decay. 
as we look and we see different things that are happening and all the wars that are happening in our, in our world today, as we think about famines, as we think about earthquakes, as we think about all of these signs that we see listed in Scripture, there are many questions and big questions that keep getting asked by people on a regular basis. Many of you have been asking the same questions. If you have your notes, you can follow along with me as we give a quick recap and catch up from last week. The big questions that many people are asking can be boiled essentially down into one question. When will Jesus return? As we look at Matthew 24, Jesus gives us this picture of all of these signs of what will happen before he returns. And as we look at it and we look at our world today, it causes us to question, is this the moment? And the interesting thing is that Jesus had a lot to say in answer to this question of when he would return. You'll remember in Matthew 24 that the disciples are going to ask some similar questions of Jesus here. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus and disciples are walking out of the temple, and as they walk out, the disciples are looking up at the temple in Jerusalem, and they're thinking to themselves, what an incredible and magnificent piece of art this building is, how wonderful it is. And Jesus kind of spoils the moment by looking at them and reminding them that one day, not a single stone of this building will be left on top of another. All of it will be completely decimated and destroyed. Talk about a killjoy, right? And his disciples, as they hear this from him, are completely confounded. Jesus has been saying a lot of things that really don't make sense to them. The disciples have this picture in their mind that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that has come to get rid of Rome, to allow them to rule themselves, and to set up an everlasting time of peace. And now Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed. He's talking about not long from now, he's going to be put to death and raised again. And they're trying to get this picture because it doesn't fit the picture they have of the Messiah who's going to come and deliver them and set up this time. And so because of these conversations, the disciples ask Jesus the same thing. When will all of these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus speaks into this in Matthew chapter 24 by giving them a whole list of signs of things that would take place. I mentioned a few of those, wars and rumors of wars, talking about famine and earthquakes, talking about false teachers, and he gives them this litany of things. One of the things that I think was most striking, we'll talk about this a little bit later as well, is that he gives them this picture that his return would not happen until what? Until the gospel of the kingdom had been preached in the whole world. Then the end would actually come. He gives them these signs and he helps them to understand this truth. They're waiting right now in this moment for Jesus to initiate his kingdom. He says, guys, it's going to be a long time from now. It's not happening at this exact moment. But you need to be aware of what is happening around you. And as you watch, it should drive you towards certain things. What is the purpose behind Jesus' answer to his disciples? You can write these in your notes, four things. One, he tells them, hey, look, it's going to get bad. You're going to need to cling to me. Number two, it will be a while before I return. Number three, I will return. And fourth, no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus literally looks at them and he tells them, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not myself, but only the Father who is in heaven knows the actual day and time of my return. And so what does he say coming off of that teaching? He says, therefore, keep watch. Keep watch. 
And we talked about last week how this can be actually a statement that causes us to truly misunderstand the most important thing that Jesus is driving us toward. We've just gotten this whole litany of signs, and it can be very easy for us and tempting to look at those signs and say, when Jesus says keep watch, it means watch what's happening. Watch the earthquakes, watch the famine, watch the wars. And as this stuff happens, remember, he says it's going to be like birth pains. In other words, it's not just that these things are happening because they've been happening for centuries. But they're going to happen in increasing, happening in increasing strength. And things are going to progressively be getting worse and worse. And then the end will come and we, they would be tempted. We today are tempted to look and think that when Jesus says to keep watch, that all he's talking about is look at the signs, look at what's happening, and then you'll know. And what happens is we do that and then we think all we're trying to do is predict when it is that Jesus shows up. And when we think that way, what we've done is developed an over-fascination with cracking the code of when Jesus will actually return and we miss the point. What Jesus does in Matthew chapter 25 that we will look at this morning is he begins to unpack for us. We're going to look at just the verses 1 through 13. Next week we'll look at the second part of the chapter. But he is going to unpack two things that he wants his disciples to know and to focus on when it comes to what it means to be someone who is keeping watch. His greatest fear, and you see this throughout everything he says, is that he recognizes that for his followers and for all who would follow him for all time, one of the greatest dangers as we wait for Jesus to come is that complacency would set in and we would not truly follow. And so Jesus is going to make this point very strongly this morning as he explains what it means for us to keep watch, to be ready, and to be prepared. If you're following along with me in your notes, you can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to take a look together at verses 1 through 13. Uh, in your notes uh, before that verse, you'll see that it says there, Jesus is going to use the imagery of a Jewish wedding celebration to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like so we can understand what he meant by keeping watch. Jesus is going to tell a story, a parable, a story with a, a deep meaning. He's going to tell this parable so that we have an understanding of the plan of what God is unfolding, but also Jesus wants his disciples to understand in a deeper way what it means to keep watch. So read with me in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. It says this, that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, Jesus says, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Now, one of the important things for us to understand what Jesus is trying to teach is to understand the idea of the Jewish wedding, uh, Jewish marriage or Jewish wedding celebrations of that day. If we try to correlate what happens there with what happens today, uh, it's completely confusing. I think about it in these terms. Uh, Letter A. When uh, somebody was going to get married, oftentimes it would begin letter A with the bridegroom purchasing, in quotes, his bride, purchasing his bride. In other words, oftentimes marriages were arranged. A dowry or a payment would be made to the family of the bride as a gift. It's very different from what we experience today. I remember when uh, I was going to uh, propose to Rochelle, one of the first things I did is I went to her parents and, uh, and set up a time for us to get together and to talk because I wanted to ask for their permission. And uh, I, because I wasn't very wealthy and didn't have a nice dowry, apparently all I could think to do is I can't give you a cow so I might as well take you for a steak. So what did I do? I took him to a place called the Spunky Steer in Redlands, California. Yes, it's not a good steak. Don't ever go there if you're visiting. Okay, so, but it's, they like to go there. So I took them to this restaurant. We sat down together and uh, had this meal. I was so nervous. I mean, I knew that they, I thought, I was pretty sure they were going to say yes, but I was like sweating bullets. We're eating dinner together. I couldn't bring myself to actually ask. Like I was so nervous. So I decided I'm just going to wait till the end after we've enjoyed this meal. We're just going to have small talk together. And then the moment came where the, the, the waitress brings the bill and sets it down. I'm like, okay, now's the moment I got to do this. You know, I know they were sitting there just waiting, like, is he going to actually do this? You know, he's chickening out. And so I, I muster up the words, Kurt, Debbie, I'd, I'd like to talk to you because I'd, I really want to ask Rochelle to marry me and I, I'd like your blessing. And a lady sitting right across from us hears everything that I say and she literally exclaims, oh my goodness, he's asking for his girlfriend's hand in marriage. And the entire restaurant turns and looks right at me. And I'm literally sitting there going, great, right? I'm like, as if I'm not nervous enough. Now every single person is eating their meal, acting like they're not listening, right? And so I'm having this conversation with the parents. It went well, they obviously said yes. And then I designed this whole great plan to propose. Very, very different than what was experienced in the Jewish wedding uh, celebration and process. The bridegroom would purchase his bride. He would come with a dowry, a payment that was made to the family. But the reason that this happened is because it was significant because the future husband was showing his high level of commitment and it would also bring a closer connection between the families. And what's interesting is that when we look at this parable that Jesus is telling, not every single little bullet of information is like this deeply spiritual thing. But I do think when he uses this illustration, there's something very unique when you think about it because the imagery is this picture in the story, the bridegroom is Jesus who is coming for his bride. And when we think of Jesus coming for his bride, one of the things that we understand is that he as well has purchased his bride with his very life, showing us the depth of his commitment to us and the desire for a very tight and close connection. At this point in this marriage ceremony, the very beginning, this couple would be considered to be betrothed to one another. And letter B, the betrothal period was a time of commitment and yet also separation between the bridegroom and his bride. You know, after Rochelle and I got engaged, we actually spent a lot of time together, incredible amount of time together, almost inseparable. She was going to school 
finishing our nursing degree at, Azu at Azusa Pacific University. I was about 45 minutes away at Biola finishing my degree. And uh, if traffic was good, it would be about a 40 minute travel, but we would spend just about every opportunity we had together when we either weren't working or going to school. But that was not necessarily the way things worked in this Jewish wedding celebration. You see, when a couple would begin to come together and they entered into this betrothal period, it wasn't like our common day engagement. Actually, there was a much greater commitment that took place during this betrothal period. There was much more binding, it was much more binding than engagement in modern society. It was the first stage of the marriage. Couples at this point, when they were betrothed to one another, were considered to be husband and wife. And it actually took divorce proceedings in order to dissolve this portion of the marriage. As well, not only was the commitment high, but there was also a separation that would take place. The groom would go away to prepare a home, to make sure that he was grounded in a trade so that he was ready to receive his bride. At the same time, the bride would be making her own preparations, learning to be a wife, learning how to be a good mother. And Jesus uses this imagery that we see and tells his disciples and gives them this picture that there would be this separation that would actually come between himself and them and other followers of Jesus over a long period of time, that Jesus would be leaving and his return would be a long time off. We already talked about the fact that Jesus has tried to make this point in Matthew chapter 24, that his coming and setting up of his kingdom is not going to be completely immediate, but there's going to be a future time when he returns and will come for his bride. And now we begin to see the picture coming very clearly of what Jesus is trying to paint for us that there will be this long time of separation. Let her see the timing of the bridegroom's arrival is unknown. Oftentimes in the Jewish wedding celebration, because the preparations, the bridegroom, was, uh, the bridegroom was making, building a home and learning a trade, there was never a definite fixed time that he would come to take his bride. Like today, we get engaged, we take a few weeks, maybe a month, talk about a date, set a date, and that's the date that we're shooting for. And we're pretty sure, unless something goes haywire, that that is the date that things are happening. Not the case in this situation. As the groom would go away and begin to prepare for this time, there was no knowing when that time would exactly come. We only, they only knew that it would. Now, there would no doubt be signs. The home would be completed. Things might be moving in. He would be getting grounded in his job. Friends would be warning and saying, hey, the time is coming. But the deal was is that you needed to be ready at a moment's notice. And so as word began to get out that the bridegroom was going to come, they would make a declaration. And the most important thing was to be ready, not just for the bride, but the attendance of the wedding. We relate this back to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour. The time of his return, as he speaks with his disciples, but even today as we wait for the return of the Lord, nobody knows the day or hour in which he will come. And Jesus is emphasizing the need to be ready, to be watchful, to be prepared for his coming. Because letter D, when the bridegroom comes... In this marriage, Jewish wedding celebration, the marriage, when the bridegroom comes, the marriage would be finalized and the wedding party would proceed to what would be considered to be the party of all parties. The coming of the bridegroom would be announced with a loud shout, he is coming. The wedding party would prepare to meet the bridegroom when he came. The ceremony would be held. The marriage would be consummated and there would be this incredible celebratory processional to the home of the groom or a family member where feasting would go on for days. And it was 
wasn't just the family and a few friends, but the entire community would come together to celebrate this new couple with much joy. This is the context in which Jesus is painting a picture for us to understand the need to be watchful. Jesus makes his first strong point about the urgency that is necessary for his disciples then, but also for us now. And what he does is he focuses your next point on 10 bridesmaids in the parable to emphasize the importance of being prepared for his return. And he makes this point very, very poignantly. He says, as we read through the passage together, letter A, that there are five bridesmaids out of the 10 that are prepared. What it means that they're prepared is this. He uses and he says that, you know, they had these lamps. We might think to ourselves of like these little clay earthen vessels, a small lamp. But when you look at the Greek, it more likely is talking about a a semblance of some kind of torch that they would actually carry, where you might have some kind of cloth or fabric on the top that has been dipped in oil, and that when you light it, would light the way. This was not only meant to give light, but also to bring this like brilliant light of celebration around the party as they would travel together. And it says that these five bridesmaids that are prepared, not only do they have their torch, but they also have oil and flasks because they don't know when he's coming. And they know that this journey will take some time. They want to make sure that they are prepared to be a part of the celebration. They're anticipating it with all that they are. So they have prepared and they have their oil and flasks. But Jesus also says letter B that there are five bridesmaids that are not prepared. In other words, while they have their torches, they have not taken the time to prepare and to bring oil with them. So they have no oil. They're pictured as being foolish, recognizing the importance of the moment, the importance of the celebration, the fact that they have been invited in to be a part of this. They don't do what it takes to be prepared for the moment when it comes at any moment. And let her see as he continues to tell the parable that we read, we see that panic ensues when the bridegroom's arrival is announced. Panic ensues. The announcement of his arrival is made. The wise bridesmaids, it says, rise and they trim their torches. They're ready to go. But the foolish ones begin to panic as they realize that their torches won't stay lit. And so they begin to ask, can we borrow some? Can you give us some? Can you, can you give us just a little something to keep them lit? They're trying to light them, but they won't stay lit. And they're told no, because there won't be enough for all of us. And so what do they do? It says that they run off to find anybody that could possibly sell them some oil. And while they are gone, the bridegroom comes and the processional begins. And it goes to the place where the feast is going to take place. And letter D, as the party arrives... They move inside and it says that the door to the feast is shut and the unready are excluded. And this is a very harsh reality that Jesus teaches within this parable. What does it say in the passage? It says, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, knocking on the door. And when he answered, what did he say? Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so Jesus follows that up and says, watch therefore, for you neither know neither the day nor the hour. The tension in this parable is built as Jesus is using it to illustrate the end times when Jesus himself will return to take his bride, that there will be those who are ready and those who are not. And the simple truth of the matter is the tension is built because one day, It will be too late. If you have not prepared, if you have not yielded your heart to Jesus Christ, 
you will be left behind. And it says that that will be the final moment. We see all through scripture where it is said that when Jesus returns, it will be that is the very last moment where you will have opportunity to yield your heart and your life to God. And if you have not done so, that you will spend an eternity separated from him. But I believe that there's an even harsher reality that sets in when we read this passage. Because I don't believe it's just talking about who we would typically think about when we talk about like, yeah, if you have a non-believer, they're not going to get into heaven. Jesus, I think, makes an even greater point. And the harsh reality is this, letter A, that there will be many people who have looked the part, sounded the part, and even at one time played the part, but who ultimately will be turned away in the end. And that is a staggering reality. How could this be? How could it be that there could be people, even in the church today, that when Jesus comes, will find themselves on the outside because they weren't prepared? How is that possible? Let me tell you how it's possible. I want you to think about some of the statistics that have come out most recently today about the church. Some of these are staggering to me. Some of them aren't. They should be. They aren't. But one study was done recently by Arizona Christian University, and the study showed that one-third of senior pastors in America today believe that good people can earn their way to heaven. That's a staggering statistic. One-third? And only 37% of them hold to a biblical worldview. What does that mean? In other words, what they believe, a biblical worldview means that what you believe is guided and shaped by what the Bible says, not what you think, right? Only 37%, 37% hold to a biblical worldview. There was another study that was done, and this shouldn't surprise us. If that's the condition that's, that many pastors are in, there was a study done by Barna Research Group that says seven of 10 U.S. adults call themselves Christian. Now, all you got to do is look at the world and ask yourself, are 70% of the people in America Christian? That, that's a highly debatable uh, statistic. Seven in 10 call themselves Christians, but of those, six in 100, in other words, 6% only have a biblical worldview. That's why 56% of them believe the truth in their minds that God accepts the worship of all religions. 38% believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. 65% believe we were all born innocent in God's eyes. 37% believe religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not of objective truth. You know, the interesting thing is, is when I look at these statistics, I shouldn't be surprised when scripture tells us that there will be many people who have looked the part, sounded the part, even at one time played the part, but who ultimately will be turned away. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus tells us all through scripture in many different ways that this is the truth. In Matthew chapter 24, three times in that chapter we looked at last week, Jesus warns his followers of these things. One, watch out that no one deceives you. He says, false prophets will deceive many people in the end days. The love of most will grow cold. He says, as time continues and leading up to the time when I return, there are going to be people that lead many people astray. Now, a false prophet is not just somebody who's predicting the future, a prophet. A false prophet can also be, and a false teacher can also be someone who is coming and teaching 
teaching you something false about the good news of Jesus. And when I look in the world today, there are a lot of false beliefs about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a whole lot of complacency that exists within the church that we have decided is okay and it's good. And what it's done is it has deceived many people. Is it any wonder today that the, the, the words of Jesus when he says that the love of most will grow cold could actually be true? And when we see this happening in our world and even in the church, we shouldn't be surprised. In Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus is talking and he says these words. As he thinks about the, the coming, his, his coming, he says, when the Son of Man comes, he actually asks the question, will he find faith on the earth? Will there be actually people that have true faith in Jesus Christ? Or will they simply be going through the motions or walking by some own religion that they themselves have made up themselves but attached the word Christian to it? Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus reminds us that there will be many people that will be led astray and not walk after God. Just a few, few verses later in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, what does he say? It mirrors exactly what we just read in our parable, by the way, in chapter 25. He says, on that day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The dangerous thing that I see in the church today is that I believe Satan's biggest trick is to get us to believe that simply going through the motions of the Christian life is good enough to get you into the, door of, into the doors of heaven. He wants us to believe that we can live our lives the way that we want to, live them in full sin, not in surrender to God. And as long as you're going to church and you're a good person, you've prayed the prayer, that that gets you your ticket into heaven. I believe that he has distorted our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that there are many people that are so easily led astray because they don't walk by the word of God. We think if we pray a prayer, go to a building, say we believe in God, do some good things, it's enough. But the truth is this, you can do all of those things and have never surrendered your heart to Jesus. Letter B, the kingdom of heaven is not for those who merely respond to an invitation, make confession, or express some affection for God. When we pray a prayer of salvation, it's not the prayer that saves you. When you say with your mouth that you believe in God, the Bible tells us that even Satan believes that God is real. We may look and say, I believe that God has done some really good stuff and he's a cool dude and I, I like to hang out with his people. But if we have never surrendered our hearts to him, it leaves us in a place of unpreparedness. Let her see. Jesus says so clearly in Matthew 24, only the one who is pre prepared and who perseveres to the end will be saved. Only the person who has surrendered their heart to God, who holds tightly to what the word of God teaches, not to what is expedient in a culture that writes its own rules. Not a person who's, not a person who's perfect, because we're not but a person who is consistently seeking reconciliation with God and life in the spirit rather than seeking to justify sin and not walking according to God's ways. What I want you to catch this morning is one of Jesus' key points. 
being watchful isn't just looking out the window at the sky. He gave a whole litany of signs so that we could look to know and understand as those signs grow in intensity that the time of his return is coming. But there's a much greater purpose than just looking out the window and trying to predict the day in which he's going to come. If that is where we find ourselves as we study the book of Revelation, Matthew 24 and 25, the book of Thessalonians, the book of, of Daniel, all of these places in scripture that talk about the end, if all we're doing is trying to discern the times so that we can predict the moment, we have missed the point. And the first point that Jesus wants to understand is that there is an urgency that we must live with and it begins with us. And it begs us to ask ourselves this question. If time is short, and Jesus says that in the end times, many people will be deceived and led astray, that their hearts will grow cold, that many will walk away, then it begs us to ask ourselves the question, are we prepared? And there are four questions I believe we should be asking ourselves. Number one, are you daily guarding your own heart? Not just are you watching the signs, but are you watching your own heart? Are you daily spending time with God and in his word? Not just going through the motions, but allowing it to be the thing that keeps your heart aligned with what God's word says and teaches, not what is expedient or easy in our culture today. Number two, are you keeping your eyes focused on Jesus? When the difficulties and trials of this life get hard and things get difficult and we look at the world that's falling around, that, that around us that's falling, falling to the ground, are we keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus? Or what often happens today, what do we do? We so easily run to other people or run to ourselves or other things in order to find our solace or in order to find our comfort or in order to find our answers. What does Jesus desire for us to do? To be prepared by keeping our eyes fixed on him, recognizing that our life in this moment that we live for maybe 60 to 80 years if we're lucky, maybe 100 if you're extra lucky. It's a vapor compared to eternity. And Jesus is the only one that can get you there. Are you keeping your eyes focused on him? Number three, also are you continually seeking to be surrendered to him rather than surrendering yourself to the things of this world? Are you seeking greater holiness and honoring God with your life? That when you're confronted with sin, are you the type of person that is clinging so tightly to Jesus that you don't go, oh, let me try to make an excuse for it, but you say, no, I wanna confess it, I wanna surrender it, and I wanna follow Jesus because that's what brings glory and honor to him. And finally, number four, are you trusting Christ at this very moment with your whole life? And I make this point because I want us to really understand. When I was a young man, it was very easy for me to read through this passage and to think about these things and to think about the fact that there will be people one day that believe they should be in the kingdom of heaven and they will find out that they are not. And it left me in a place of terror. Like, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I have this gift of eternal life that has been promised to me? What if I'm actually that person that is knocking at the door and Jesus says, Lord, Lord, or I say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. Let me tell you how we have our confidence and gain our confidence. You see, the Christian life isn't about being perfect because we're not. We're never going to be. But the Christian life 
is about whether or not we are trusting Christ in every moment of our life with all that we are and surrendering our hearts to him, placing our faith and trust in him and the work that he accomplished, recognizing that we ourselves can never be good enough to earn salvation, but salvation alone comes through Jesus Christ because he paid the penalty for our sin. And so when I live my life in surrender to him, not just when I go through the motions of church and go to church, do a couple nice things, pray a simple prayer, but daily as I walk with him and yield my heart to him, when I'm trusting in Christ at this very moment, I can have assurance of salvation in him. And I say this to you today because Jesus wants us to understand that being watchful isn't just looking out the sky at the signs trying to predict his coming, But being watchful is also about being prepared in our own lives and with our own hearts being completely surrendered to him, knowing that we can have confidence that one day we will be with him when he comes again. Now, it'd be really easy to end this message right here. This parable, when you actually read it at face value and end at verse 13, can feel a little bit like a downer. The bridesmaids are knocking, please let us in, and it's too late. But here's why it's not a downer, friends. Because Jesus has not come yet. He will. And he has promised to come at a day and hour when we do not know. But he has not come yet. And the beauty of that is this. Is that for every single person that sits in this room, it is not too late for you to make a decision to yield your heart to Jesus Christ. If you have never placed your faith and trust in him, You do not have to worry about what the future may hold for you when he does return if you make that decision today. As you sit here today, having been a Christian for a number of years of your life, and yet knowing that you have really struggled with submitting your heart to Christ, maybe you've been more entangled in the things of this world, maybe not completely prepared, kind of doing the church thing, but not really yielding your heart and daily trusting Christ, You can have complete assurance of your preparedness by making that decision today that says, I choose to trust and surrender and submit and not live according to this distorted version of Christianity that the world paints for me, but by living according to what God's word says. The beauty of this message, this hard message in scripture is that God loves you. God wants you. God has given everything for you by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross to pay for your sin. And he is inviting you into a right relationship with him. He wants you to join him at the feast that will top all feasts, the party that will top all parties, to live with him forever in heaven for eternity. And today is the day for you to receive his invitation. Will you do it? We do not know the day or the hour that Christ will return. As we look at the world around us and as it's falling apart and it seems like the signs are increasing in number, we don't know. It could be tomorrow, it could be a couple years from now, but do you really wanna chance it? Would today be the day that you finally decide to yield surrender of your heart to Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have given us your word I thank you that you have made so clear to us the depth of your love for us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That while we have been in the act of rebellion against you, God, you would love us so much 
that where you knew we couldn't pay the penalty for our sin in and of ourselves in order to be restored in relationship with you, you sent your perfect son to take that punishment for us, that if we would believe in him, place our faith in him, surrender our hearts and our lives to you, that though we're not perfect, you would give to us the gift of eternal life. And we acknowledge, God, that in this world, it is very easy, even as those who have professed faith in you, to be complacent and to not be prepared for the day of your coming. And so, Lord, today we want to make that decision. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you this morning and you're feeling that tug and that pull in your heart, recognizing like Jesus could come at any moment, and I don't want to not be in. I want to be with him. You can make that decision this morning to place your faith and trust in him. And if you wanna make that decision this morning, I would simply to ask you to pray a simple prayer after me. The prayer in itself is not magical. The prayer itself does not do anything. It is simply a statement of a commitment of your heart to place your faith and trust in Jesus and to follow him. And if you'd like to make that decision this morning, I'd ask you just simply to pray, Lord Jesus, in your heart, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you came to this world to die on a cross for my sin, to pay for the penalty of my own rebellion against God. I believe deeply that you love me. You've proven it. And I ask that you would forgive me of all of my sin that you would wash my heart clean and that Lord Jesus, you would come into my life. I commit my life to you. I choose to follow you and I surrender all that I am to you. I tell you right now that if you prayed that prayer that the word of God tells us that the angels in heaven celebrate when even one person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and you can know without a shadow of a doubt as you commit your heart and your life to him that you have that gift of salvation. If you've made that commitment today, I would ask you whether during this next song, if you wanna come forward here to the front and just simply pray or maybe our prayer team at the end, I want, don't want you to leave today until you have spoken with somebody, not just about the commitment you've made, but about how you can have a church family like this that will walk with you as you continue to grow in your knowledge of God and the surrender of your heart and life to God. But I also recognize this morning that there are people here that feel the pull and the tinge that go, you know, I've been in the church for years. I have, you know, years ago prayed the prayer to receive Christ, but at times I recognize it feels like I'm going more through the motions than I should be. I have given myself over to some of the things of this world and sin. I've been wrestling and I am not sure that I'm prepared. And today you can recommit your own heart to God by just simply saying, God, I want you to remove that sin from my life. I want to be prepared for your coming. I want to renew my own commitment to you and ask that you would wash my heart and that you would begin a new work in me today through your Holy Spirit. As you surrender those things to the Lord, you can know that he hears you. You can know that he will answer and that he will respond. And again, we would love the opportunity to speak with you today about that journey that you are on as you seek to yield all that you are to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift you've given us. And Father, 
we yield all of our hearts to you and we wait expectantly for the day that you will return. May we be found faithful following you until that day comes. Let's worship together.
thank you for worshiping with us today. Again, if you took time this morning to just do business with the Lord, whether you committed your heart to him for the first time today, or maybe uh, just felt the need to say, I need to be prepared and yield some things to Christ, please don't leave without talking to someone today. Tom Moore up here, go ahead and wave. Tom, Tom is up here, one of our elders, and we'd love the opportunity to pray with you or to lead you to our prayer room. But share with somebody the commitment that God has done in your heart today. Allow it to be the thing that helps you to grow deeper roots in your relationship with Christ and into the life of this church because God desires to do a work in us so that we would be prepared not only for his coming, but then to go out and to share the good news of, of Jesus with other people. And so as you go out from here today, church family, be prepared. Pour more of your heart and more of your life, all that you are into Jesus. Allow him to change and transform the ways in which you live in this world. And then allow him to use your life as a testimony to others. He's going to give you opportunity this week. Use it for his glory. God bless you. I look forward to seeing you guys next week.